memory, digital souls, and trumping science with God. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. In just a few weeks, I'm going to be in Denver uh, with St. Andrew's United Methodist Church for their Sunday morning service at 1020 and then a little Q&A in the afternoon at a pub that's going to be a lot of fun. There's more stuff on my events page, but uh, we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. This week, I read an article about a woman named Kim Suwazi, who, after learning of a terminal cancer diagnosis, decided to have her brain cryonically preserved upon her death at age 23. I know it's not realistic to think that we could possibly revive her brain or even upload it to a computer in the near future, but hundreds or even thousands of years from now, I think it's completely realistic. This raises a bunch of questions for me about the afterlife. If she's gone and she's either ceasing to exist or in heaven or hell, and then she is somehow brought back, what part of her is brought back? Is it just her consciousness? Is it her soul? I don't really even know what to make of this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Mike. I'd imagine at least a couple of people listening right now (laughs) are experiencing an exploded brain. Uh, And it may be a new idea to you that it may be plausible to transfer a human's consciousness into a computer, that that's not just an idea in science fiction, but it has at least some plausibility to it in science, especially in computer science. And here's why. Uh, We can use math to emulate the behavior of neurons and create something called neural networks. Obviously, neural networks are the foundation of our consciousness and the way that human brains work. Um, Essentially, what a neural network does is it takes a signal. Repeated signals through a neural network either strengthen or weaken different connections, and in doing so, encode information. This is completely different than the way computers encode information as ones and zeros, for example. Uh, We encode information as strength of neurons, but we can build neurons in software. And because of that, today we can actually emulate brain-like structures in software. And we can actually, using supercomputers, emulate relatively sophisticated brains with a similar number of neurons as, say, a rat. Uh, And in fact, uh, you can find on YouTube a video of someone who took the neural network of a worm put it into a robot, and with no programming at all, this Lego robot was able to uh, sense obstacles and back up and move forward. No programming, just directly porting the brain map, the neural network of a worm, running it as software. I don't remember. That was a few hundred neurons, I believe. The human brain has 86 billion neurons. So in pure neurological complexity, Uh, The human brain far outstrips what computers could emulate today. But as we all know, there's something called Moore's Law, and computers tend to get faster over time. Although I'm a computer guy above all else, and uh, it's time to let you know a little secret. Moore's Law hasn't been doing so hot lately. (laughs) We're having a hard time increasing the 
per core performance of computing significantly at the high end. And most of the energy in silicon today is going towards either adding more cores or increasing the efficiency of low power cores in mobile processors. At the high end, the kind of processors we put in supercomputers, Moore's law hasn't hasn't applied for a while. Uh, so the first thing I want to say, I'm not as comfortable making the assumption that it's inevitable that at some point we'll be able to emulate a brain in a computer. Maybe, you know, like you say, maybe hundreds of years, thousands of years, maybe computer science will get lucky and it'll be 20 years. I don't know. Uh, but human brains are remarkably complex. And as far as we can tell... Uh, neural activity isn't the entirety of brain function. We have other types of cells and other types of processes, and their role in signal processing the brain is poorly understood today. And I know that at kind of the most detailed levels of the brain we look at today are far, far more elaborate than simple neurological or synaptic mapping. So, but let's assume for a second, let's assume that at some point computers get fast enough to actually model 86 billion neurons at enough fidelity to create human-like capacity. We would also need the ability to scan the state of a brain well enough to reproduce its model. Now, with something like a flatworm, it's much simpler. It's very, not a very complex brain. <laughs> it's not nearly as plastic as a human neocortex. Every human brain embodying consciousness is a unique configuration and, in fact, is changing over time. Now, all this is premised on a pretty fundamental divide. Some people are dualists, and dualists believe that there are a, a, a separate, unseen, immaterial realm with a soul or a spirit, and then a physical realm with a body and a brain. And those two things are linked in life, but in passing, they're separate. Other people have a more holistic view or unified view of reality, and they say, nope, there's no difference between a soul and a mind and a brain. They're all the same thing. Uh, now, obviously, that has interesting implications for the afterlife. If the soul and the mind are simply part of the brain, if they're simply emergent phenomenons of neurochemistry, then there really is no conscious afterlife and there is no soul to go to some other place. So we're going to have to make several assumptions to answer this question. The first assumption is computers will get fast enough to emulate a human brain. Number two, that someday we'll be able to scan brains with enough fidelity to reproduce an existing brain and software. And number three, we'd have to make the assumption that souls exist independently of brains. Three assumptions. If that's all true, I would have to assume that when you booted up a copy of an old brain and software, you'd essentially create a new soul, a snapshot of the of a soul uh, at an earlier point in time. I don't imagine that you'd be retrieving some immaterial essence. But the point here is we're making a lot of conjecture. It's an interesting thought experiment, but this is one of the things that actually leads me away from making definitive claims about the afterlife or definitive claims that there is some immaterial part of my being. I'm actually more a materialist than anything else, <laughs> like, like an atheist or uh, an empiricist. I don't see a lot of evidence to satisfy the idea that there is some part of humanity that is separate from our physicality. 
Now, that doesn't mean I don't acknowledge the merit of the idea of a soul. I think there is a soul. I think we can prove a soul as some essential defining characteristic of a person or even an organism. I think in some ways, scientifically, our souls live on after we die. I think people remember us. I think uh, the things that we do in the world that change things and the things that we teach others and the way we influence people's lives live on beyond our physical deaths. I think that uh, one interesting way to look at the ongoing resurrection of Christ is a mimetic resurrection, that the teachings of Jesus live on and continue to remake the world. And yet, on some level, because I've had such profound experiences with God, and because the story of Jesus' resurrection is so formative in the way that I view reality and experience the world, I hold out hope for some reunification with my maker on the other side of my physical death. I think terms like consciousness or being or will or agency are probably too limiting to discuss such a thing. And I've talked about that in other places and writings that, you know, this would be a three hour podcast if I got into that stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, I think questions like these, would the soul be retrieved if consciousness was transferred to a digital means, does a lot to show us that we are using insufficient means to discuss mystery and the divine when we use human language, that these sorts of logical puzzles like, could God make a rock so heavy that even God couldn't lift it, don't limit what God may be, but reveals our relative ignorance about ultimate reality, about the divine, and even what it really means to be human and alive. Our next question came in via the email inbox on AskScienceMike.com, and it reads, Mike, thanks so much for what you do with your show. I believe you are making the world a better place. My wife and I grew up in a very conservative Christian context, the Mormon slash Latter-day Saints Church. We have since formed new views about life and religion and have left. We enjoy skepticism, science, and have a new sense of wonder about the world, but it has been a difficult road. We still have many close friends and family in the church, and we want to have good relationships with them. Many are very respectful and kind, but they often make comments to us about how we are deceived and lost, and they treat many of our views and actions with suspicion. We feel strongly about certain social issues, such as the treatment of the LGBT community, but we are less vocal about our views than we want to be because they are usually taken as deep personal attacks against faith. We do not enjoy conflicts, but sometimes we feel we must say something. The strong reactions and conflicts that result make us want to give up or distance ourselves, but that seems wrong too. How do we make an impact in the world without isolating ourselves or hurting those who disagree with us? This is a fantastic question and one that comes up a lot with people that I see in person at events or or just socially in life. How, on the other side of a faith transition, do we continue to get along 
with the people we knew before. And it's tough. I can't say that I've nailed this in my own life. I have people who were once very, very close friends that my pulse elevates if I see them <laughs> because I'm, I'm afraid of what confrontation could happen. So before I answer it, let me say I'm learning how to do this as well. Um, I surprised myself on the last episode of the Liturgist podcast when I started to talk about Calvinism, and I had no idea how vehement my thoughts on Calvinism were related to that conversation. I would say that probably Reformed or Calvinist theology, hyper-Calvinist theology, would be my uh, equivalent of your experience with the Mormon or Latter-day Saints Church. Here's a couple things I would say that I'm figuring out. One, don't try to control other people. And you might say, well, I never try to control people, but all humans try to control other people all the time. We try to control what they think about us. We try to control their actions in the context of how they relate to us. And we even try to control their actions in their own lives in ways we think that benefit them or benefit ourselves. And the fastest way to have greater happiness, greater personal peace, is to completely let go of the need to control other people, how they feel, how they act, and what they think about us. So that means if they think you're lost, they think you're lost. Okay, great. I make jokes about people who think I'm lost in their presence uh, as a way of disarming that tension. And I don't do that disrespectfully. I just kind of name the elephant in the room with a joke. I also think it's essential to set boundaries. You can control what people say about you in your presence in regard to your own mental health. This is not saying they can't say things about you. It's simply saying the terms upon which you'll be in relationship with other people. And there is nothing wrong with that. There's a noble notion in the Christian faith of forgiving. And that's good. And that's healthy. But we take those teachings and we somehow interpret it to mean that we have to maintain all of our relationships but if a relationship with a person hurts you and hurts the other person and continues to do so, I see no problem with setting boundaries on that relationship for the benefit of both parties. So there are people in my life who are conservative Southern Baptists that I've known for years, and we can go to lunch and we can talk, we can laugh, we can talk about things we disagree about, and nobody gets upset. And there are other people in my life who are conservative Southern Baptists who I've known for years who literally can't tolerate my presence. So I set boundaries with those people. I don't spend time with them. I don't hold ill will against them. I don't hope bad things happen to them. I hope their lives are successful. I think about them. I pray for them. Uh, but I don't call them and ask them to lunch. If they were to call and ask me to lunch, that's something I would very carefully consider before I went. What I'm saying is, it's healthy, it's good, it's beneficial to be part of community that helps you grow and flourish. And a community, a social community, a spiritual community, whatever kind of community it is, for it to help you grow and to flourish, one, it has to be able to love and accept you exactly as you are without reservation. And two, it needs to be able to draw you into who you are becoming, who you could be, as my friend Bob Goff says, can help you become love. That's, that's what this whole faith is about, is about becoming 
love, becoming love in the world, becoming like God, becoming like Christ. So I'm part of community today that loves and affirms me and accepts me and draws me forward, that sands down my rough edges, that points out the things I get wrong with grace. And that's my final point. You want to confront harmful speech and harmful actions with grace, but you do want to confront them. And I do that by looking for things we can agree on. So I am radically affirming of LGBTQ relationships and marriage, radically affirming no reservations. I refuse to call any of those things sin. But that's a long way for other people to go. They're not there yet. And guess what? A few years ago, I wasn't there either. So if I know someone who is nowhere near me and not interested in in affirming same-sex relationships, I don't try to lead them there. I can't lead them where they don't want to go. But I do confront them if they say harmful things in my presence about LGBTQ people. And I do see if we can agree at least that the way LGBTQ persons in our society are treated is immoral and harmful. And can we agree that, for example, using the word fag only contributes to teen suicide and does nothing to further either your cause or mine? I do that with grace. I do that by saying, listen, I'm not saying I have life figured out, but I am saying that using that word in that context causes harm. I live in the South. I take a similar approach to racial issues. When I have friends who are white, who use racial slurs or make racial jokes about people of color, I confront that with grace, but I do confront it because to sit in silence in behaviors like those is to contribute to the kind of systems that lead to the oppression of people. So, to wrap it up, to review. One, don't try to control other people. You cannot lead them where they don't want to go. Number two, set boundaries as needed to maintain healthy relationships and distance in the case of abuse. And number three, confront harmful speech with grace. And all this leads to one idea. You feel a call to follow Christ, and in doing so, love the world. But never, in the midst of that call, make the mistake of believing that you are Christ and that your suffering and sacrifice will save the world. Because it won't. Sometimes we have to suffer for love. Sometimes we have to suffer to help improve the lot of others. But we also have to take care of ourselves. We have to be healthy in order to help others. Hi, Mike. I have a question about memory. And in particular, why some people seem to be so much better at remembering things than others. And I guess I'm also wondering, as a person with a really terrible memory, is there any hope for me? Is there any research suggesting that you can make real lasting improvements to your memory, or am I just kind of stuck here? So yeah, memory, how does it work? Thanks, Mike. Sometimes you guys ask me questions that um, are totally reasonable, but are problematic. And this is a problematic question because we have a very limited understanding of how memory works in science today. I tell people sometimes that in terms of our understanding of the brain, kind of in the age of um, 
Galileo in astronomy. We've just made telescopes for the first time, and we're able to get far more detail than we've ever had, a, a much closer look. But that look is still very limited and very grainy compared to the intricacy of a human brain. Memory is really complex, and we understand how memory is coded across neurons at a functional level. Like, we get exactly how, at the neurological, single neuron level, memories are wired. But how that structure works across the brain is almost a complete mystery. And so much of what we know about memory doesn't come from looking at the brain, but from looking at experiments in psychology and making conclusions from human behavior. Uh, and so I want to be clear that right now I'm, I'm exiting neuroscience and moving more toward neuropsychology or even just psychology to talk about different models or understanding of memories. And I'm going to hybridize a couple of approaches uh, just to make it more accessible. And basically, there's two big dividers in, in what we would call long-term memory. You have explicit memory, which is under your conscious control, and you have implicit memory, which stores skills. Now, implicit memory is simple enough. Get on a bicycle or brush your teeth. You're using implicit memory, muscle memory, uh, automatic memory, physical memory, whatever you want to call it. Explicit memory is our ability to recall events or uh, ideas or spatial things. So ep explicit memory has three major categories. One is episodic memory. And episodic memory is how you remember a specific event tied to a specific time and place. Semantic memory stores kind of a symbolic understanding of how the world works. So uh, whenever you contemplate or learn ideas in science, you're using semantic memory. And spatial memory places objects in our map of the world. And interestingly enough, when you use more than one type of memory, your recollection goes up. So if I'm learning an idea in science, one trick I use to remember it is I will not only use my semantic memory to review the idea, I'll use my episodic memory to remember when I learned that idea, the setting and the place. And if it's a book, I'll use my spatial memory to place that idea on a page in a book on a shelf so I can find it later. So I use all three types of explicit memory to maximize uh, my long-term memory recall. Now, emotional memory uh, links your episodic memory to feelings and frankly, neurologists and psychologists are, or neuroscientists and psychologists aren't entirely clear if emotional memory is implicit or explicit. And that's our long-term memory. Now, we also have working memory. And your working memory holds three to five pieces of information. You need to complete tasks that face you now. So when you repeat a phone number over and over as you walk to your phone to dial, that's working memory. Uh, if you're remembering uh, what number you're going to carry doing long division in your head. That's working memory. You remember it just long enough to use it, and then the brain lets go. So, for example, when I say my memory is terrible, if I were to say that more precisely, I would probably say I have a poor episodic, spatial, and working memory. And not all of my memory is terrible. My episodic memory is pretty bad. My spatial memory is horrible, and my working memory is pretty much non-existent. But my semantic memory is great. I mean, that's why I'm Science Mike. I can recall science almost effortlessly. And my implicit memory is probably below average, but not awful. Now, interestingly enough, intelligence 
is often linked to to poor memory. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Because intelligent brains aren't any better at remembering than normal brains. What intelligent brains are good at is forgetting extraneous information. Uh, Now, the problem for intelligent people and why the absent-minded professor idea is so popular and so frequently used as a colloquialism is that my brain will often consider the four fundamental forces of physics as vital information, but the location of my car keys as extraneous. (laughs) So I go to sleep, I wake up, and I have no idea where my keys are if I don't put them in the exact same spot every day. So that's normal. If you're a creative person, if you're an intelligent person, poor working memory, maybe associated poor episodic memory, maybe associated, we all have different memory specializations. Okay. Now, are there ways to improve memory? Absolutely. The Mayo Clinic offers seven suggestions. One is to stay mentally active, reading, crossword puzzles, logic puzzles, those kinds of things. Just work your mental machinery. That's how neurons work. Neurons that fire together, wire together, and that improves your memory. Number two, socialize regularly. We're a social species, and the act of interacting with other people stimulates the brain on a wide level. Number three, getting organized actually helps memory. Uh, I tend to be very organized because my working memory is so poor. And by keeping my physical environment uh, in a predictable state, I free my brain from having to keep track of objects um, because I know they exist in a system that's predictable. Number four, and this is huge, sleep well. We're a sleep-deprived people. And sleep is essential to the functioning of your brain, especially memory formation. Number five, eat a healthy diet. What you eat affects how well your brain works. Number six, be physically active every single day. Unfortunately, there are few things better for your brain than physical exercise. Believe me, as a nerd, I hate that. Number seven would be to manage any chronic medical conditions you have because the resources you spend Fighting a chronic health condition will detract from your ability to focus and form memory. And then I would add a bonus based on my you know, chosen life research, essentially, is prayer and meditation. Every, all the research I've seen is that uh, frequent prayer and meditation does increase focus, concentration, and even memory recall. So stay mentally active, socialize regularly, get organized, sleep well, eat a healthy diet, be active every day, manage chronic conditions, and as a bonus from Science Mike, pray and meditate every single day. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Mike, I really enjoy your program, but struggle a bit with what seems to be a premise that religious beliefs should have scientific basis. I'm not anti-science or saying it should never have scientific basis, but why should we assume God is subject to the scientific method. If God operates both in and outside of creation, then looking at everything through the lens of science seems overly fixated on one plane of things and might suggest that scientifically unprovable things are most likely untrue. In other words, I feel like there's an inherent bias, intentional or not, in evaluating God scientifically. For me, I would frankly be disappointed if God could always be measured and graphed. That's not very transcendent. So what can science really tell us about God and faith? Thanks, Jay. 
Well, Jay, I don't think you could have made a better question for this program. That is a science, faith, and life perfect, uh, all three. And I certainly don't mind you questioning my assumptions. I I don't know if you'll like my answer, but here it goes. I agree. I don't think God has to measure up to standards of science. I think it's entirely possible that God operates in ways that are beyond the ability for science to measure especially anything happening, as you said, outside of the observable universe. And here's the problem with that. We can't weigh in on what's happening outside of the observable universe. It's a complete mystery to us. So if one person says there is a God named Yahweh who exists outside of the universe, who loves us and was incarnated as the form of a man— As soon as they make that claim, there's an action inside the physical universe that we can test. Incarnated in a man. Did that man exist? What evidence do we have that this man was divine? You just entered the realm of what can be measured with science. If we extract that and we simply speak of Yahweh as a God who created everything and someone else says no, a God named Bob created the universe accidentally as part of a science experiment. How do we evaluate those two claims? Well, how do we evaluate any two conflicting claims in life today? We look at evidence. When we are in a court of law and we're trying to figure out, is this person innocent as they claim or guilty as the prosecution claims, what do we do? We gather evidence and make a conclusion. And so I certainly agree That if there's anything like God, God is in some ways beyond our understanding and beyond our ability to measure. But if God never interacts with the observable universe, God's irrelevant to us. You see what I mean? Like, we have no way of knowing or interacting with or understanding things that happen outside of the observable universe. And most people who believe in God aren't deists. They're they're theists of some variety or pantheists or panentheists, and they believe that God is active in creation. And if God is active in creation, then God is doing things that can be measured. It's that simple. So I have all sorts of beliefs about God that aren't especially scientific. I believe that God loves us. I have very little physical evidence to back up that belief. So I just admit that. When I have non-scientific beliefs like God loves me, those aren't beliefs I'm going to try to convince other people to hold. I I spend very, very little energy trying to convince someone who doesn't believe in God that they should believe in God. Instead, I let my belief that God loves me transform my life and the way that I treat other people. I believe unscientifically that a man named Jesus rose from the grave. I spend very little energy trying to convince people who think that's absurd that it happened. Instead, I try to embody the teachings of Jesus and in so best demonstrate what I believe is the reality of resurrection. It's a division in thinking. In other words, if I'm going to make a case, for example, that human activity is harming climate in a way that will affect human civilization, I can make a scientific case and I can lobby people that they should change their behaviors using science. 
It's it's something I'm comfortable making a corporate calls to action about. But when I have religious beliefs, those are things that give me meaning and are most relevant to other people who also have had an experience that caused them to put confidence in that belief. They've had their own form of personal revelation, personal experience with God. And I think that's the tension you're catching. I often say that science gives us facts and nothing, no other form of human knowledge acquisition is as effective as science at giving us facts about reality. But faith, and indeed my faith in God through Jesus Christ, gives me meaning to those facts. It lets me know what to do with it. So the facts may tell me that poverty is a problem on the globe today. But it's my faith that calls me to action in the face of that poverty. It's my faith that tells me that I am to serve the poor, the orphan, and the widow. So, of course, God is transcendent. Of course, God, even in what I see in physics, is beyond not only our understanding and our language, but even beyond our mathematical models. When we talk about the beginning of all things, we speak of an unknowable, unspeakable oneness where all the forces of physics, matter, energy, space, and time, were one and causality probably didn't even exist. Right? That sounds like mysticism, and it's just physics. That's transcendent. But I can't, I can't make fact claims about singularity. I can't make fact claims about a God beyond the observable universe. I can only share with others who are interested the experiences I've had that made me feel connected to that great mystery. And in doing so, perhaps they might meet that mystery themselves. I'm not traveling near as much in October, and it's actually, it's been nice uh, because I had time to talk to my patrons on Patreon, and this week's show, uh, all the questions were selected by my patrons on Patreon. So if you'd like to be a part of putting the show together, not only making it possible financially, but actually contributing and deciding what questions are part of the show every week, go to AskScienceMike.com, and you can be a part of listeners that support this show through donations. It's not seed money. I'm not promising God will bless you because you give to my show. I'm promising you I'll be thankful and will be able to pay for my health insurance. (laughs) That's it. Um, Now, uh, every dollar helps, so you can give it any level, and you can change or cancel a pledge on Patreon anytime. So no worries. If money's tight, go ahead and lower your pledge or cancel it altogether. People do it all the time. It works out. Other people kick in. The other thing we need on the show is your questions. So you can go to AskScienceMike.com. You can submit a question. You can also use hashtag AskScienceMike on social media, and I'll find that, especially if it's on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. I do have some events coming up later in October. I'm going to be in Denver with St. Andrew's United Methodist Church. In November, I'll be in London for Belong with the Liturgists. You can learn more about that at theliturgists.com slash belong. And I'll also be doing a storyline with Don Miller and Bob Goff and some other friends in Chicago in November as well. I'd love to see you at one of those events. You can go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events 
to learn more. The show is produced by the amazing Canadian Greg Nordine. But of course, our theme song is by Jeff Bodiford. If you do any kind of media and you need original music recorded, composed, arranged, whatever, Jeb can do it. He's a genius. You can find links to Greg and Jeb on my website, as well as resources for almost every single question that's been asked in the history of the show. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.